Scripture reading this evening will be read from John chapter 8, verses 21 through 30. John 8, 21 through 30. Then Jesus, Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then, Jesus, then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand what the, they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, "When you lift up, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but the Father taught me. I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him." And he spoke these th- and he spoke these words, many believed in him. Nice to see you, church. Good evening. All right, we're gonna camp out in chapter eight, so just hang here and uh, we're gonna continue to work our way through the way of salvation teaching series that we're doing on Sunday nights. We're in part three. But if you've been here the last two Sunday nights, you know that we're on step number two, right? And what has been commonly known in our church heritage as the plan of salvation or the steps of salvation. Um, We're doing this uh, as I want to continue to put before you um, the objective so that we don't get lost on our journey. There's There's a lot of things that we could be trying to do, but we have some objectives that we're trying to accomplish in teaching through the actual God's plan of salvation, how people go from lost to saved, and how that journey and how that process takes place. The first thing that we're trying to do is do the hard work that is our responsibility to be done. Every generation, every person um, can't just simply relax upon the work that was done before them as some spiritual trust fund kid in the realm of the church world. We have an obligation to do the hard work thinking through these ideas, these concepts that many men and women before us have done and enjoyed the great fruit of them. And so it's our responsibility. Number two, what we want to do is reframe some of the shortcuts that have dissolved some significance in the teaching of the way of salvation in our fellowship. Um, things like hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized became almost like catchphrases in our fellowship. Things like repentance uh, became just a catchphrase. And so it's our responsibility to go to those shortcuts and look at them and reframe them in a way to understand the significance behind them, the depth of them. Tonight is no different. Um, The third thing we want to do is strengthen intergenerational conversion. You know, one of the great dangers of church, um, raising children in church, is the assumption of the gospel. I think I've told you about this um, study that happened about the Mennonite brethren in Virginia. The University of Virginia put on a study where they looked into 
um, the generational conversion of the Mennonites. You know, that the faith that is based upon the teachings of Jesus Christ for the most part. And they have deep beliefs in, in the way that they withdraw themselves from society. And so what they wanted to do in a sociological experiment was understand how do we take, how do they convert the next generation to not, you know, get, get involved in society? And what they noticed was on one side there was a successful group, and that was a group of people who were maybe the leaders of that generation who believed the gospel of the Mennonite tradition, who understood it, could explain it, and lived it. But then the difference was they articulated it clearly to the next generation, the purpose behind it. They saw another group that was basically two major groups, and that group had also leaders in their generation that loved the, the gospel, the Mennonite teaching. They loved the understanding, the principles, but they simply assumed that the next generation would absorb it. And so what the sociologists noticed was that there became a gospel that was loved, a gospel that was assumed, and by the third generation it was a gospel that was hated. And what he meant by hated was just it was negligible in their life. And so a great warning to us is to not have the gospel be just assumed in our generation that they're going to get it. So it's our responsibility to clearly articulate the doctrines and teachings of the New Testament about what's wrong with humanity and how that problem actually gets solved. It's our responsibility, and I think on our watch we owe it to our young people to do a very as best we can by the strength of God for them. And lastly, I want to um, stir up within any of us that might have a stale faith in some of these things, um, especially as we reframe these, these things and understand that they're not steps of salvation, but they're practices of salvation. These are practices that a believer learns to engage in the rest of their life. Hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and dying to self are practices that a New Testament Christian engages in their entire life. And so... We want to stir up any stale faith that may, may be among us and convert anyone that may be not yet a Christian. So, with that being said, we've learned so far about the problem of mankind, the problem of sin, and then the initial practice that we've got to begin to engage in if we want to take the steps or the process of salvation. And that first practice that we've got to bring into our life is the practice of hearing, being good listeners, reflective listeners, thoughtful listeners, those that take the Word of God in and hold fast to the Word of God. Tonight we're going to look at one verse in particular, just one verse, one sentence of Jesus to understand what is commonly known as the second step or the second practice that we've got to engage in. And that's the practice of belief. The practice of belief. Jesus says in verse 24 this really stark and profound statement. He says, I told you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am He. You'll die in your sins. This whole concept here, this whole section that Seth read for us, revolves around the idea of what do you believe? Your beliefs. That's what it's all about. And so the faulty beliefs of these Jews kept them in a lost condition. And the declaration of Jesus is that belief about His identity, what you really think about His identity, is the cornerstone of whether you live or die eternally. 
It's the cornerstone of that. Jesus, Jesus is saying that the difference between life and death, eternal life and eternal death, rests upon your beliefs. What are your beliefs? So we've got to dig into beliefs. And I warn you, um, you know, pre-warn you about this, that we're going to have to do some thinking tonight because beliefs are sometimes really hard to see. Sometimes they're hard to articulate because we live out of our beliefs, but we don't always articulate our beliefs. And so we've got to be willing to do some work together to think about what beliefs are and how we reframe those things together. So we're going to do three things tonight. Number one, let's define what actually are beliefs. What is a belief? When Jesus says, you've got to believe that I am He, what does He really mean when He says the word believe? Okay, number two, we've got to ask, what goes wrong with the beliefs of humanity? What has gone wrong with your beliefs? That He tells them, unless you change your beliefs, you'll die. And thirdly, we've got to look into the, what the beliefs are that actually lead to life. So what beliefs lead to life? What are beliefs? What goes wrong with them? And what beliefs lead to life? Let's get into it. Number one, what are beliefs? I think the easiest way for us to do this tonight is to first say what beliefs are not. Uh, th this is really important, especially as we engage um, a process of learning tonight. You know, somebody is teaching, people are receiving and learning is hopefully happening. It's important for us to see this. That belief, a belief is not the same as knowledge. It's not. Your beliefs are not the same as what you know. You can know a lot of things about a lot of different subjects. That doesn't mean that you operate out of those beliefs. Okay, so beliefs are not the same as knowledge. And belief is also not the same as agreeing with somebody. I actually believe this is one of the foundational shortcuts that we've got to get rid of in our process of converting, especially our young people. You, you know, when we take their confession and we baptize them in the Christ, sometimes we don't really ask them what they believe. We just ask them if they agree with us. And that's a very dangerous practice sometimes that can be based upon assumption. We say, you know, do you believe this? And we've asked them a leading question in which they either agree or disagree. And instead of asking them to articulate what they really Believe. Belief is not knowledge, and belief is not just agreement. Now, beliefs are shaped by knowledge, and you most likely agree with what you believe, but they're not the same thing. Seeing belief as just knowledge or just something you agree with is what leads to really shallow conversion. When you see belief as just intellectual knowledge or just something that you will articulate and agree with, um, that's what leads to very shallow conversion. So here's what beliefs are. Beliefs are what we judge to be true about the world and about ourselves. Beliefs are what you judge to be 100% bona fide accurate about the world, about people, and about yourself. And so deep within each and every one of us are a set of beliefs that you believe are true about God, about religion, about church, about the world, about work, about family, about friends, and about yourself. You have a belief set that you think is true about all these things. And, the, and these beliefs then determine how you live your life and how you experience your life. You see, beliefs are first the foundation on which you build your house. It's, it's what you believe to be true about the world and about yourself. And so it determines 
how you live your life. And at the same time, beliefs are the house in which you construct on that foundation that you live your life out of, the way you experience life. And so Jesus would tell the story this way in Matthew 7, 24 through 27 about a, a person who built a house. He said there's a wise man that built his house. There's a foolish man. The foolish man didn't dig any foundation. He just found the first thing in front of him. He didn't think about it. He just slapped together a house and he lived in that house. Those are his beliefs. And then he said there was another man that dug deep into the earth. He found the rock, which is the parable of who Jesus Christ is, laid a foundation, and then built a house. Now here's what's interesting about that. Both people in the story experienced life. They experienced catastrophe. And their beliefs, the house that they built, that they live in, that they live out of, determined how they experienced life. One had their life destroyed and the other had their life sustained. And so beliefs are what you judge to be true about the world and about yourself. And it's how you live your life. It's how you make your choices about your life. But it's also greatly determines how you experience your life. We'll get into that in just a moment. We'll see how our beliefs mainly about ourselves, what we believe about ourselves, determine how we experience life and how God wants to fix that. So, okay. If that's what beliefs are, what we judge to be true about the world and ourselves, and that, that which determines how we live and experience life, what goes wrong with them? If that's what beliefs are, what, why is Jesus concerned about a certain set of beliefs that a certain group of people have that would lead to death? And so, let's dig into that. Question number two, what goes wrong with our beliefs? Everyone begins developing beliefs from the time, really, they're born and they can start articulating and thinking thoughts. Um, and eventually, everyone will operate out of those beliefs. Um, and these major beliefs in our life color the way that we see everything. Um, so we have memories, we have thoughts, we have experiences, we have life, we have learning. But there becomes, there's sort of this, this condensing of major thoughts that come together about our life and who we are in the world that begin to color everything in our world. In fact, psychologists are just recently starting to give some vocabulary to this that's always been true about us, but they're digging into how they can start working with people and they're calling them what they say core beliefs. Now, have any of you seen the new Disney movie Inside Out? Anybody? Riley's seen it. Clay, have you seen it yet? Okay. Anybody else? Elena's seen it. Christy, is your family seen it? Just Christy by herself? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Woodard's, did you see it? No, no. Lori, did you see it? Okay. Do you remember the little girl and, and those, um, what they called the core memories? Basically, the story is about, uh, it takes place inside of the head of a little girl. It's a beautiful story. Uh, they must have consulted some of the leading psychologists in our country today because they really articulated it well. And what they said was, basically, this little girl, based upon her life experience and what she learned, had formulated what they called five core memories, core beliefs. And that was how she saw the world. And they were things like family is important. That's a core belief. And so out of her life, she operated under the assumption that my family matters to me. She operated under the assumption that, that I um, enjoy sports, that sports are good. And so she was physically active and participated in sports. And she believed that about herself. She operated out of the assumption of the belief that enjoying life and having fun was important. And that, that colored her life. And so core beliefs that we operate out of are defined by us. 
Beliefs end up forming our identity, who we are. And these are shaped by, as I said, our experience, but also how we're wired, our nature, and all of that. And so the problem is this. The system of forming beliefs is not the problem. The problem is the people that are actually forming them. You see, we live in a world that is affected by sin. We're raised by parents that are not perfect. Jesus said, you give good gifts to your children, but guess what? You're evil. We experience difficulties in life that are affected by sin. We have trauma as the time that we're little sometimes. We have difficulties and challenges and and all kinds of things. Sin affects the way that we grow up. And so sin affects our beliefs. But what's so big about that, right? Well, you remember in week one, how we define sin? That sin ultimately is suppressing what is true about God and replacing God with yourself. Sin is is defining and determining our life apart from God. What sin is at its core is replacing God at the center of our life with ourselves at the center of our life. And so sin now demands, here's what sin teaches us to do, to build our life and define our identity based upon ourselves. You remember in uh, Genesis 3, the story of Eve with Satan? The two things that happened to Eve were she was convinced that she could self-determine her life, direct her own life. This fruit is good. I'll probably enjoy it. And she was convinced that eating the fruit would let her be like God. It would define her identity. So it would define where she was going, and it would define her identity, and it replaced God. There's the problem. So how does this work? That's kind of all in theory. I want want to bring this down to ground level and try to talk through how this works, and then we'll get to the answer. Here's how sin affects your beliefs without the gospel. The beliefs, the way that you see the world, the way that you see yourself. In simplest form, we all grow up learning to cling to both high good times and low times in our life. And this eventually manifests itself um, in in core beliefs that become things like self-love, or self-hate. And now the way that you find out about which way you kind of lean strong one way or the other is by listening to the way that you talk to yourself. That might sound strange. Some of you might be like, well, I don't talk to myself, but that's actually not true. You do talk to yourself. You constantly are communicating to yourself. And so what you have to learn to do is listen to what you actually say to yourself. Go back and like think about journaling for a day. What are the things that you say to yourself? about yourself and about the world? What are the messages that you constantly are saying, how you interpret when somebody does something wrong to you, when somebody does something nice to you, when you look at yourself in the mirror, when you think about a job or a performance that you're doing? What are the messages that you constantly are saying to yourself? That reveals your belief system. Let me give you some examples. Here's what self-love sounds like oftentimes. So we should all probably just look down because if you want to admit this, then you just don't want people to see it. So, so for mutual, that's all, no, I'm just kidding. Safe place. So here's what self-love sounds like. Man, I can do things other people just can't. I really should get more attention and praise for the things I do. If I don't excel, I'll just end up being ordinary, and that's not good. People have no right to criticize me. How dare they? 
that person has no right to criticize me. How dare he or she? People just don't understand me. People really need to start hearing what I have to say. Sound like your self-talk? Let me give you the opposite side. Here's what self-hate sounds like. Man, I am worthless. Everything I do is wrong. I can never measure up to what other people think I should be. No one will probably want me. I should be all alone. If I speak my mind about what I think, people will probably leave me. I am such an out-of-control, weak, always-messing-up person. That's who I am. So, here's the reality. If you're like you know, most people, me included, you usually bounce between the two, right? So, good days you're on, maybe on the self-love, bad days you're on the self-hate, maybe you're somewhere in the middle. And the problem is they sound like they're opposite of each other, right? One is like a self-pity, loathing, kind of like get over yourself. The other one is like this arrogant kind of aggrandizement of this self. But when you're, on, and when you're on the low end, you just need to like nudge yourself up a little bit, you know, pick yourself up. And if you're on the high end, you just need to knock down a little bit. It's like the answer isn't self-love or self-hate, but just self-like. If we could just find that healthy balance, we'd all be okay. But that's not the answer. You see, self-love, on, if you look at a spectrum, and self-hate, the answer is not the middle, self-like. You'll never find salvation in just that. You see, these two extremes actually have the same root. What did you notice in the same that's common between them both? What's the very first word in both? Self. Self. And what's the only voice you're listening to, whether you're on one end of the spectrum or the other? Who's the voice you're listening to? Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, um, a f- first a physician. They became a, a minister in England in the 50s, 60s. In the 70s, he wrote a fantastic book I recommended to you called Spiritual Depression. And what he said was, if he went to Psalm 42 where David said, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And he was talking about eating his tears constantly just because he was so depressed. And he said, the problem with depression, spiritual depression is this, that you're listening to yourself, not talking to yourself. You're just listening to the moping of yourself or listening to the aggrandizement of yourself. That's the problem is the voice you're listening to is self. Do you see how self, the the sin affecting beliefs, self at the center is determining what you believe about the world and yourself? Am I making sense or is this too weird? Do you see how sin affects beliefs? You're relying on self to define how you see the world and how you see yourself. And that never leads you to salvation. Beliefs were never intended to come from you. Self was never designed to determine your identity or your worth because here's the problem. Sooner or later, when you feel great about yourself, you'll realize that you're just the only one patting yourself on the back and you'll quit and it falls apart. So what beliefs then lead to life? That's where Jesus comes in and he is bold. What he wants to do is not just give you a self-esteem pep talk. He wants to reconstruct from the very core outward, your beliefs to give you actual life. Your life is way too fickle and way too unstable to build any beliefs on. You need a foundation that is based upon somebody else who doesn't change. And so Jesus says, unless you believe, not think, not agree, not just know about, but unless you have a belief system, 
that is based upon not just what I've done, but who I am, my identity. You will die in this cycle of sin. You will. This is where belief comes in. And so the doctrine of Jesus Christ, to go to a completely objective part of our sermon, the doctrine of Jesus Christ is the foundation of all Christianity. In Matthew 16, Jesus came to his disciples. He said, who do people say that I am? What are people saying about my identity? And Peter, in the rest, he gave some answers about Jeremiah or some other prophet, John the Baptist maybe. But then Jesus comes to them and he says, here's what matters. What do you think about me? What do you really think about my identity? And Peter answers and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I will build my church upon that confession, upon that foundation. I will build the life of saved people on the foundation of my identity. It matters that you have the ability to articulate the doctrine of Jesus Christ. That matters. And you've got to make some investment in that. You've got to take some time to dig into. I know it's not always appealing and it's not, you know, they probably don't sell books in the devotional section at Barnes and Noble about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. But you've got to do the hard work of understanding who he was and then ask yourself, do I really believe this or not? You've got to do that. Because if you cannot articulate what you believe about Jesus Christ, you might not have a foundation that is stable. Let me give you the basic tenets. I've done some work on the doctrine of Jesus in other series. They're online. Last fall I did a series on um, foundations where there's a sermon called Christology where you can get into that and I give you even more. And, And there's material all over the place. If you want material, I'll get you material. But let me give you the basic tenets that you need to work out. You need to understand the pre-existence of Jesus. Do you know that, do you believe that he existed before he became a man? You need to understand the incarnation of Jesus, that he was both God and man fully in the flesh. What do you believe about that? You need to know the sinless life of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Do you really believe that a man lived from start to finish sinless? You need to understand and learn about the crucifixion. You'll spend the rest of your life uncovering the depth of the crucifixion of Jesus, what it meant. You've got to go back into Leviticus and learn about the law of blood and atonement to understand who Jesus was. You've got to dig into that. You've got to learn about the burial of Jesus. That He didn't die and just go back to be with God. He died and was buried, a lifeless corpse for three days. You've got to think about that. You've got to learn about the resurrection, that a lifeless body was reanimated with life. And what that means. And you've got to learn about the ascension of Jesus. One that we often forget about in the gospel message, but where he is right now. What is Jesus doing right now as I speak? Right now, do you know? Because that understanding shapes your belief. Let me give you quickly how these beliefs um, practically work out in your life. Let me give you just a couple examples from that list, okay? Because I want to help this be very practical for you. These doctrines are should be the meat, the substance of what you meditate on every day about who Jesus is. Let me give you an example. Let's do the pre-existence of Jesus. Let's think about that for a minute. What does that mean? The pre-existence of Jesus is the most foundational context for your life. You see, He he is the greatest power in the world. The Scripture reveals that He pre-existed us and coexisted with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit 
And he was the agent, John said in John 1 verse 3, that all things in this world were made through him. Do you see how that can drastically affect not only your suffering, but maybe your prayer life? Who else should you pray to that controls all things, that is sovereign over the world? The pre-existent God of the world became man. Do you see how this has practical implications? How about the incarnation, the greatest demonstration of love, that the pre-existent God would actually come for you, and that His love for you is not based upon your performance, but His character. So on those days when Satan whispers to you that you're not lovable, do you have much of a defense to that? What's your weapon against that? To go out that day and be perfect? That's what a lot of us do. We white-knuckle a perfect day and we say, ha, Satan, look, I am lovable, and then the next day we mess up and we feel terrible. If you're tired of that roller coaster, you need something stable. The incarnation of Jesus says, I loved you because of my character, not yours. Do you see how this stabilizes you? Sinless life says that his record is your gift. And on the days, like I said, when Satan reminds you that your record is rubbish, you remind Satan that you depend on a record that's not yours. His crucifixion reminds us that our life deserves the wrath of God. One of those days that you got like kind of some self-love going on, you know, maybe hit some steroids on that side. You need to be reminded why the crucifixion happened because of us. That humbles you. And then you see Jesus absorbing it, knowing that you're loved. The burial, which is all of our greatest fear. We long for immortality. We don't always acknowledge that, but we do. The burial says that a man went to that place where all of those loved ones that we care about have gone. And then the resurrection says that he came, he overcame that grave, where we will as well. Resurrection is the verification that your sins were paid for. God would not have raised Jesus Christ from the dead if He were not an acceptable sacrifice. Romans 4 says. And so when you're thinking, is God really going to accept me and can I be saved? You look to the resurrection, the empty tomb and say, He must have accepted the payment so He accepts me if I'm in Christ. The ascension says that Jesus Christ returned to the Father and there He is the advocate for us. Meaning, He is up there with the Father saying He or she is one of mine. They're mine. Do you believe that on a Tuesday when you're frustrated that you have an advocate with the Father? One who mediates for you to Him. You see, finding your true life, your true worth, your true identity can only come through Jesus Christ and what you actually believe about Him. Your practicing belief in Jesus determines whether you have life in Him or death in your sins. Sin will make your beliefs all about you and from you. Jesus Christ will make your beliefs from Him, stabilized in Him. Jesus says what you believe about Him matters. He said, unless you believe that I am He. But you know what? That wasn't the only time that Jesus said, I am He. About ten chapters later in the Gospel of John, Jesus was in a garden all by Himself and He was praying. He was weeping and lamenting. He was stressed. He was sweating drops of blood. He was suffering at the thought of drinking the cup of judgment. And after His prayer, He rose up and some thugs came and they had weapons and they had torches and they approached the garden with Judas. And Jesus boldly steps out to them and says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And in that moment, Jesus said, I am He. 
Do you see how important that statement is? It was in that moment that Jesus Christ eternally fixed your identity. Your identity is not tied up in your career, your family, your children's behavior, your money, your talents, your gifts. Your identity is not tied up into that. The moment Jesus said, I am He, it fixed your identity in Him, if you'll believe in Him. It fixed your worth and your value. And in that moment, He verified to anyone who would finally believe in who He is that there is someone greater than you who you can trust for a belief, who you can trust to love you, who you can trust to care for you, and who you can trust for all things you need in this life and the life to come. The question is, are you just going to believe it? Are you going to look into Him and really see if you believe it? Christian or not, the practice of belief determines whether you live eternally or die in sins. The choice is yours. Let's stand and sing.